Wow, that was uh, very impressive, and uh, thank you for not asking me to be a part of that, because it looked very hard. <laughs> uh, so I already mentioned, obviously, if you know me, you know this, I love pop culture. And I love, uh, I love analyzing pop culture, I love writing about pop culture, I love discussing pop culture. And a big part of that is because I think that when we look at popular culture, the popular part of it is, is what's interesting to me. It's, it's, it's what's resonating with us. And e- even, in, uh, even in Kanto, like we're going to talk about this when we move to the series, right? But um, in, in Kanto's song, We Don't Talk About Bruno, became Disney's most popular song of all time. Like it even beat out Let It Go from Frozen. And when they were talking to Lin-Manuel Miranda about that, he said, yeah, you know, like, obviously we wanted all of the songs to be good, but you kind of have a sense of which songs are going to be the hits and which ones aren't. And, like, the, uh, the uh, what is it called, the, um, the piece that everyone sings on, right, is never the big hit. Uh, and, uh, oh, it's going to drive me crazy until I can think of this word. The cast piece or the, uh, whatever, it's going to come to me when I stop thinking about it. Ensemble piece, woo, thank you. Okay, now we can move on. Okay, so the ensemble pieces are never the hits, right? It's always the solo pieces. Again, like Let It Go and Frozen. And so even he was shocked that, like, We Don't Talk About Bruno became the biggest hit from the movie. And uh, I love that. I love that, that, you know, people create art, and obviously when you create art, you want it to be good, but you just never know what's going to strike a chord with culture and become something more than just... A moment, it becomes kind of this new thing that becomes a part of the vocabulary of, of, the, of the culture. So I love looking at that and saying, well, why? Like, why did this thing resonate so strongly with our culture? And Encanto was one of those things. Came out last year, uh, did pretty well at the box office, despite COVID box office. But then when it hit Disney+, Plus, just went everywhere. That, that's where I first saw it. We didn't make it to the theater to see Encanto, so we saw it on Disney+. Plus. Immediately loved it. You know, it was terrific. And you just started seeing it everywhere. Everyone was talking about it. Everyone was singing the songs. You know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, won, won an Oscar. Uh, or, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so, when, when something like that happens, I always love to slow down and say, okay, so why this thing at this moment, right? What is happening in our culture that this thing resonates so strongly. And again, as, as a pastor, as someone who comes from a perspective of faith, I love to ask that because it helps us to diagnose. Like, what do people care about? What do people, what questions are they asking? What needs are they expressing that this thing is, is connecting with? Because uh, again, I think it helps us be better neighbors, right? And communicate better with uh, people about faith and in, in the vein of faith. And so Encanto, you know, blows up. And, and I do think, while the songs are terrific, Obviously, we're going to be doing a lot of them this summer. It's more than just the songs. It was more than just that it had a great soundtrack. Uh, there's, there's something about how we all see ourselves in these characters, right? So for some of us, maybe it is the tough, no-nonsense abuela who's the you know, protector of La Familia and the Casa. Uh, for some of us, I think maybe it's Mirabel, the peacemaker who's trying to keep everyone happy. Probably some of us feel a little bit like Bruno, who I know, I know we're not supposed to talk about him, right? But maybe some of us feel like that ignored, overlooked, like you might as well be living in the walls. Um, I, I just There's all these different characters, right? And one of the things I think is really funny is that as soon as, as soon as Encanto became really huge, a bunch of people, uh, myself and, and my wife Amanda included, as soon as we finished it, we said, did you notice that it seemed like all of those different characters embodied different 
parts of what is called the Enneagram, which I know not everyone has heard about. So if you're confused about that for a moment, just hang on. But for those of you who have heard of it or know about it, let me tell you, like this was one of the big conversations on the internet, which was which number of the Enneagram does each character connect with and how does that help us resonate and how do we see ourselves in them and all this kind of stuff. So I say all of that to say we're going to do something this summer, it's beginning today, where we're going to look at Encanto and the Enneagram. And again, I know some of you don't know what the Enneagram is, and you're thinking, maybe I should, should I just leave or whatever happened? No, just trust me, you'll be all right. Uh, if you're confused right now, here's what I want you to begin with. Uh, today, we're going to begin with this idea. For the summer, we are going to be looking at uh, an invitation that the Holy Spirit gives us into spiritual growth and into spiritual change. And that's honestly, I think, a big part of why Encanto resonates with us, because we see all of these fa this family that on the surface seems to be really happy and really together, but we find out in the movie actually has some pretty deep-seated issues that they need to, to address and to work through. And in the movie, they do, right? There's this movement in the movie by almost all of the characters into a place of healthier relationship and healthier self-love uh, and healthier connection than where they began the film. And I think that's a big part of why we love it so much, because we can see ourselves in some of these characters, and we can see that there is a path for us to spiritual transformation as well. So we're going to talk more about Encanto. It's okay if you haven't seen it. We'll give you what you need to know. We're going to talk a lot more about the Enneagram. It's okay if you've never heard of it. We'll give you the basics you need to know. But what we're all doing all of that for is to get at this invitation that the Spirit is making to us as a congregation as we move through the summer. Uh, we want to be welcomed into uh, change, into transformation, into becoming the people that God created us to be. And so today... As we begin this journey, we're beginning with an invitation. Will we say yes to the Spirit's invitation to become more like Jesus? Will we say yes and allow the Holy Spirit to transform us and to bring us into a place where we are healthier and more whole and more connected with God and with the people around us and even with ourselves? Uh, so I hope, I hope you're uh, at least open to saying yes to that. Uh, with us today. So we're, we're going to begin by singing a song together. So I'm going to hand it over to Nathan uh, and Penny. I invite you to stand up with me as, as we begin worshiping. Welcome to Summer at Catalyst. Uh, we've been excited about this series for a few months since I promised we would do it without thinking about it. Um, whoops. But hey, it's happening. We're actually really excited about it. So, uh, so we are spending the summer working through the movie Encanto, and uh, we're specifically using a tool for spiritual growth that is called the Enneagram. Uh, now, superficially, the Enneagram looks like a personality profile. So, uh, are you like a Myers-Briggs guy or StrengthsFinder or the Shapes one? I don't know which one. All of them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, haven't we all, right? Um, so it looks like that because uh, there are, in the Enneagram, there are nine numbers. One, I mean, one through nine. And everyone is one of those nine numbers. And it gets, it gets more complicated after that. We're trying not to be too complicated, right? Um, the, the real difference, though, is in what the Enneagram is meant to do. So uh, it took me a long time to get on board with the Enneagram. I was, I was very skeptical of it for a long time. But I heard a, a spiritual director named Ian Cron uh, speak about the Enneagram one time. And he said, this is the thing he said that, that convinced me. He said, personality profiles try to tell you who you really are. Right, so Myers-Briggs gives you these, you know, you're an ENFJ or whatever, and that tells you this is who you are, right? And this is why you behave the way you behave, and this is how to be you more thoroughly and more effectively. 
He said, Enneagram, though, tells you who you're really not. Okay, so, so the numbers, one through nine, what they represent are different lies that we believe about ourselves. Uh, they, they represent different uh, ways that we have tried to create a persona to protect us from the world around us. So this is, a, this is an idea that, that theologians and spiritual directors called, call a shadow self. So it's not your real self. But we all, uh, mostly when, we, you know, mostly for most of us starts when we're kids, we encounter a world that is uh, scary or hostile in some way. And so in order to protect ourselves from it, we create a persona, a false self, a shadow self. And the whole job of the shadow self is to keep us safe, okay? Uh, the problem is that it is a false self. And so we, when, we, when we live out of that shadow self, when we interact with the world through our shadow selves, uh, it, 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 uh, it misforms us, right? And it, it actually gets between us and God because the goal of spirituality is the opposite of that. It's not to hide, it's to be seen. So uh, I, before we get into the weeds too much with the Enneagram, what I want to do is, is hang out with this concept of shadow self and talk about where we see in the scriptures uh, that this is dangerous for us and how, uh, what, what the antidote to it is. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with us to 1 John chapter 1. Um, and if you've uh, you got one of the Bibles out of the back, that's on page 743. If you're turning or clicking over to 1 John chapter 1, this is a letter that was written uh, to a congregation in the early church by a guy named John the Elder. Uh, some people think it was the same guy that was the apostle, like John, James and John, son of thunder guy. I, we're not sure about that, actually. It doesn't really matter. All we know is it's a guy named John the Elder who was uh, kind of a, a pastor or some kind of spiritual mentor to this congregation. And so he writes them a letter. And in the letter, uh, we see a lot of the language that's very common to a lot of the stuff John writes, uh, you know, uh, dualism between light and darkness, good and evil, stuff like that. And so uh, as we read this uh, passage, we're going to read verses 5 through 10. I just want you to pay attention to what John says about light and dark and the relationship between sin and, and, and good. And, and then particularly how he locates our own struggle with sin. Because he says some stuff in here that I, is one of those things like in Bible college, we would read it and argue endlessly about it because it just, it's, it's a little bit confusing, honestly. And you'll see what I mean here in a second. So let's, let's read beginning in verse five. John says, this is the message that we have heard from Jesus and now declare to you. Okay, this is it. This is the message. God is light and there is no darkness in God at all. So we're lying if we say that we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Okay, so, so just right there, I want to pause, right? You heard it, right? God is light and God, there is no darkness. If we claim to have fellowship with God, but we're still living in darkness, then we're liars. So light, good, darkness, sin, bad, pretty straightforward. But, but it's that bit where he says, if we claim to have fellowship with God, but we keep living in the darkness, then we're liars, right? So that's where, that's where it feels like, ooh, uh, is John saying that if we sin at all, then we don't have a relationship with God? 
right? And again, there are some kinds of Christianity that teach that. Like I went to a, I went to a, a Assemblies of God church when I was in college for a little bit, and they like literally said, "Come get saved again," at the end of. Uh, like in their altar calls, because they had this idea, well, if you, if you sin, then you have fellowship with God anymore. You broke it, so you have to come back and get saved again, right? And this is, this is kind of where that comes from. Uh, obviously, I don't think that's what's going on here, so I want to keep reading. John says, if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. So there, right, John says, now look, <laughs> we all sin, right? Everyone knows that. And if we claim we don't, then we're just fooling ourselves. We're not living in the truth. So, if we confess our sins to him, then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts, right? So, John comes down very firmly on the, look, sin is a real thing, you guys. It's something that we all do. It's something that separates us from God, uh, and it takes us out of the light. But uh, what you see later, if you go on and read through 1 John, is not actually a big focus on sin. That, that's right here at the first part of the letter, and then it kind of fades into the background, because what God, John goes on to talk about is God's love, God's love for us. And how if, I, I don't know how many DC Talk fans in here from way back in the day, right? But if we walk in the light as God is in the light, then God cleanses us. So what John is doing in this letter is something I think is really helpful for us, actually, if we're going to really focus on doing this shadow work. John wants us to separate in our own minds our identity from our actions, okay? Because we have this in our mind that when we sin, we're sinners. And that's who we are, right? We're, we're sinners. We're in darkness, and there's no hope for us. But, but John does this thing again and again and again where he says, no, look, when we sin, if we will just confess our sin, God is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us, and that's actually how we stay in the light. Not by trying really hard not to sin, right? But by being honest about who we are and allowing God to see us and allowing God to do work in us. In other words, John has this really strange idea that God is the one who handles our sin. That God is the one who heals us and transforms us and changes us. And that actually the sort of like self-help model of just try to be better, try to do better, doesn't actually work. And that's where the shadow work comes in, right? Because what John is saying here is that we just need to step into the light and allow God to see us. That's, that's the first thing. If we can just step into the light and be honest about who we are and be honest about our failures and our sins and our shortcomings, uh, that's when God sees us. And what we, what we find in the light of God's gaze is not condemnation. It's not judgment. It's love. In John's gospel, Jesus says, I have not come to condemn the world, but to save it. Right? And this is what John's talking about in the letter here. If we come into the light of God's love, we don't find judgment and condemnation because that's not what Jesus is all about. That's not what God's all about. What God sees when God looks at us is not disgusting, smite-worthy, gross sinner. God sees God's beloved child that God created and that God loves and that God has taken on the burden of perfecting, finishing, completing. Our shadows don't want to hear that. 
our shadows are convinced that if we come into the light, we're going to get squished like a cockroach. And so our shadows say, don't do it. Stay hidden. Put out your persona. Put out your shadow self. That's the thing that's safe. And it's hard for us not to do that. It's hard for us not to listen to our shadow selves because we've lived with them for a long time. And they've kept our true authentic selves safe for a long time. And so when we see the loving, light-filled gaze of God, our shadow selves say, it's a trap. Don't do it. Stay away. And that's why spiritual growth is difficult. Because it's difficult for us to trust that God is as good and loving as God says that God is. Right? But go all the way back to the first sin in the Garden of Eden. When the woman and the man eat the fruit that God told them not to, their first impulse when God shows up is to hide. Right? And God literally, literally says, where are you? Right? They're literally hiding from God's loving gaze. Nothing has changed for us. And so here at the beginning of this series, as we, as we are going to get some tools to help us know our shadows better and know what it takes for us to grow past those shadows and to be our true authentic selves in the light of God's love and to allow then God to heal and transform those authentic selves more and more and more into the image of God. The question that we have to begin with is, can we trust God? Can we, by faith, step into the light of God's loving gaze? And by way of answering that question, I want to invite you to sing an answer with us. So I'm going to hand it back over to Nathan and Penny, and I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to sing a song that's all about agreeing with God about who God says we are instead of listening to our shadow selves or listening to what the world tells us. So would you stand with me and sing? If we're going to do shadow work, if we're going to be serious about sitting in the light of God's loving gaze, uh, how does the Enneagram help us do that, right? Uh, so, so a little bit more detail about the Enneagram. Like I said before, uh, the Enneagram has nine different numbers, and each, each of us is a specific number. So for instance, I'm a three, Okay, my wife is a nine. Do you, have you messed with Enneagram enough to know your number? A little bit? We'll find out. This will be a, a, a summer of discovery for Nathan. You're along for the ride. All right. Are, do you have any sense of what number you are? Maybe a six? Okay. All right. All right. All right. I know some of you are like, do, do you just guess, right? Is it like your favorite number? What's going on? No. So, so let me explain. So uh, you see in this uh, sweet little graphic here uh, with the Encanto characters on it, uh, the nine numbers are divided into three what uh, spiritual directors call triads, okay? So three groups, and each of them believes some kind of lie, core lie, that's motivated by a particular different emotion. So the eights, nines, and ones uh, are in what is called the anger triad, right? They're motivated by anger in some way. Uh, the eights are the ones who, who direct their anger out at the world. So we'll see Abuela is an eight. They tend to be the ones that are really uh, confrontational kinds of people, people who are no-nonsense, take no guff, right? Um, the nines avoid anger, uh, so they're the ones that stuff their emotions. Uh, actually, I don't know if this is a different movie, not in Kanto, but in uh, the original Avengers movie, when Captain America asks Bruce Banner if, it, if he can get angry real quick so he can have the Hulk, and Bruce Banner says, that's my secret, Cap, I'm always angry. That's a nine, 
right? They're always like this far away from hulking out. Uh, <laughs> but they just stuff it down. Um, so they try to keep the peace. Uh, Mirabelle is our nine, right? Even in the, in the song at the beginning that we sang, right? She said, I didn't intend for this to become autobiographical, right? Nines know it's never about them. It's always about everyone else. And then ones are the ones that direct their anger inward. So for a one, ones are the perfectionists, right? They're the ones that if there's the smallest typo in something, they're going to find it. Uh, and they're going to be real judgy about it, right? Um, but that's because ones uh, look at them, they're angry at themselves for never being able to measure up. And so then that spills out into the world around them. So that's, that's the anger triad. Uh, the next one is the shame, twos, threes, and fours. They're in the shame triad. So again, there's a, there's a, the twos direct their, direct their shame outward. They feel like they're not fundamentally lovable and that they're not fundamentally worth loving. And so they try to be helpful. Uh, twos are the super, super, super helpful people. They're the ones that'll bend over backwards, give you a shirt off their back, and probably their shoes too if you need them. You don't need them, that's okay, take them anyway, right? That's a two. Um, the threes, this is what I am, right? Threes are the ones that we avoid shame. So uh, when, when I was a kid, the, the lie that I internalized was that you are what you do. And so I'm, the, I'm constantly wanting to produce and do and make to try to impress you because I don't feel fundamentally lovable. That's a three. And then the fours internalize their shame. So these are the ones that they never feel special or good enough. So these tend to be your like real artistic kinds of people, the people that um, work really, really hard to be unique and to stand out. And it's because, again, they feel very ashamed of themselves inside. And so they work really hard to try to impress you. That's uh, Peppa, the, the one with the emotions, right? That's just changing all the time. Fours feel everything all the time at the same time. Right? And so, so that's Aunt Peppa uh, right there. And then the last one is the, the fear triad, the five, sixes, and sevens. So um, fives are, are afraid of the world around them, and so they combat that by collecting data. So fives are your, your real nerdy types that seem to know everything about everything. Uh, and want, what, what are you, you seem, seem uncomfortable over there. Are you all right? Okay, you're fine? Okay. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, they, it, fives feel safe by having more information, right? So it lets them feel like they're in control more. Uh, sixes are the ones like Bruno, right? The ones who are, uh, sixes are often worst case scenario people, right? So if, if, if you plan a trip, they're gonna think of every possible way the trip could go wrong. Uh, and then try to, try to make sure that they plan for every possible eventuality so that it's gonna be okay, right? That's how they avoid a, a scary world, right? Is if they can just plan enough. Batman actually is a classic six right? Um, when he was young, I, you know this, right? You know Batman's parents got killed? Did you hear that? Okay. Um, they made a couple movies about it. Um, but then how did he respond, right? He became a person who is prepared for every kind of possible eventuality. And that's like his superpower is being prepared for everything and having a plan for it. Like that is, that is a six. That's Bruno, right? What does Bruno do in Encanto? He sees all possibilities. And then that actually alienates him from his family, right? Because they're like, Bruno, you are a huge bummer right? <laughs> so that, that's, that's a six. And the last is seven, Camilo, right? Our, our sevens. Sevens are afraid of their interior world, right? They don't want to go deep. They don't want to live inside themselves. So they compensate by being the life of the party. They have 117 different hobbies and they just started 118. Oh, now it's 119, right? They're just constantly going, going, doing. Sevens are a blast to hang out with, okay? But do not try to have a serious conversation with them because they do not want to go deep, right? Because they're afraid. So nine different numbers, nine different core lies that we believe about ourselves. And, and so here's a couple of things about the Enneagram as we get started. First of all, 
The numbers are broad categories. Uh, again, Ian Cron said, think of it like colors, right? If I say red, well, there's like how many shades of red? I don't know, a billion or something, right? Just because you and I are both the color red doesn't mean we're the same, right? There's still a, a massive amount of variety. And this is, this is a place where people get tripped up in Enneagram. Uh, sometimes you'll find out, oh, some, so-and-so that I know is this number, so I must not be because we're nothing alike, Okay, but it's, it's not necessarily true. You can, we can both be threes and be completely different kinds of threes. The only thing we have in common is that core lie that we believe about ourselves, right? The way we express that, the way we mitigate that, the way our shadows uh, work in the world could be super different, okay? So uh, as you're learning these things, it's okay to have a little grace. These are broad, broad categories, all right? The other thing is we're going to spend the summer going through each of these numbers. So we're going to start next week with Abuela, the eight, why does Enneagram always start with eight? I don't know. Doesn't it make more sense to start with one? Yeah, probably, but none of the books do that, so we're not going to do that. We're going to start with Abuela, the eight. It also helps because Abuela's like Abuela, right? She's in charge, so start at the top. But all of that to say, if you're not an eight, you might be thinking, well, well, this one doesn't really apply to me, right? And you're right, in a way, it doesn't, right? However, I guarantee you, you know an eight, and so one of the, th one of the things that, that Amanda and I love about Enneagram is that it creates a tremendous amount of empathy. When I learn how other people see the world and I, I understand why other people tend towards the kinds of unhealthy habits we all tend towards, that I understand like their motivations for that, it, it, it creates a tremendous amount of empathy in me for them. It gives me a lot more patience. It helps me be a lot more gentle. Uh, we, Amanda and I have all kinds of stories about how our marriage has improved since we've been doing Enneagram work. And she's understood better what it means that I'm a three, and I understand better what it means that she's a nine, right? So our relationship has gotten better. Um, our, again, when our C group did this, and we kind of went through the different numbers and tried to identify with each other, we had, I, I felt like it really brought us a lot closer because we were able to understand each other on a deeper, deeper level. So all of that to say, yes, you're only going to be one of these numbers Okay, and that's a hard and fast rule. You can't be, well, maybe I'm like a half a three and a half a seven. You're not. Okay, that's not how it works. So if you're confused, that's fine. You don't have to have all the answers right away, but you're not like 50% one and 25% a three and a 25% a seven or whatever. That's not how it works. You're one number, which means only one of these is going to be about you and the tools that you need in your spiritual formation to do your shadow work. That's true. But the other eight weeks are going to be really valuable for us in community. Right? They're, they're good for us to learn how each other works, to learn what either, each other's shadow work looks like, and to be able to spot how the Spirit is inviting each of us to grow. So uh, I'm excited. Uh, well, one, Vanessa's preaching the three weeks, so I get to actually sit under someone else preaching my number, which I'm very excited about selfishly. But I'm also excited about all of the other weeks to get to learn how better to love all of the rest of you who are not threes, even though threes are the best, whatever. So... Um, that was a joke, by the way. That's, it, you'll get that when Vanessa talks about threes. It'll be really funny then, so put a pin in that and come back. Um, another thing that I just want to make everyone aware of is that in Enneagram, and I didn't believe this until we, because again, I heard about this for a long time before I finally decided to dive in. Uh, when we're going through the numbers, unless you're an eight and we start with you, right? You're going to be like, oh, that's so interesting. I might know people who are an eight and people who are a nine and, oh, people who are one, yeah. And then we'll get to your number and you'll be like, whoever this number is is a garbage person and I can't believe they would even want to be alive right now. Or they would say, you would feel like I got up here and was reading your personal journal, right? When you 
start hearing your number discussed, it is deeply uncomfortable, okay? It creates feelings of uh, shame and fear and anger, and you want to just run out the door, okay? That is because a light is being shined on your shadow self, okay? And shadows don't like the light. It's trying to hide. So it is going to wiggle around like an animal caught in a trap and do anything it can think of to try to get you to run out of the room. Uh, if you're reading the Enneagram book, it's where you want to throw the book across the room and be like, that book's obviously stupid. It doesn't know anything, right? I can't tell you. I didn't believe this until we started getting in, into Enneagram work, but that's how it happens. Folks who are live streaming, you're just going to like shut it off and like play Mario Kart or something. I don't know, right? People in, in here, you're going to be like, well, time for a bathroom break. See you never. And just like never come back, right? I say all that to say, anticipate that. Brace yourself for that. Understand that that's going to come and then embrace that when it happens. Understand that what is happening in that discomfort is that the Holy Spirit is shining a light on your shadow self, and you're being able to see the ways that you have been living in falsehood. And the reason you feel so uncomfortable is because you are on the precipice of massive spiritual change. So just brace for it, and then get ready to embrace it. Uh, it is deeply uncomfortable, but when you push through that uh, and get to the place where you can know a little bit more about your number, uh, it becomes this beautiful tool. And that's the last thing I want to tell you. The Enneagram is a tool, okay? It's not, it, you didn't miss a book of the Bible. It's not like second Enneagram 2 or something like that, that that we are using that you've never heard of. It is a tool that believers throughout, uh, for several hundred years, have developed as a helpful diagnostic tool, right? It's sort of like you don't need a stethoscope to detect your heartbeat, but it helps, right? And doctors use them because they're useful tools. Well, the Enneagram is a useful tool. If it gets too confusing uh, and it just is doing more harm for you than good, just don't use it, right? That's what I say about all spiritual formation tools. If these things are not helping you look more like Jesus, just get rid of them because that's what they're there for. At the end of the summer, I don't actually care whether you're an expert on the Enneagram. I don't care if you can name all nine numbers. I don't care if you can uh, like draw a chart of all of your shadow work that you need to do. I don't care about any of that. The goal for this series is that by the end of the summer, you have tools that help you look more like Jesus than you do right now. That you are more awake to the Spirit's work in your life, and that you are more attuned to what the Spirit is doing. So, I think that this tool is really helpful for that. And that's why we're doing it for the summer. Plus, Encanto is super fun, right? But if that does not prove to be the case for you, then don't, then by all means, don't, don't, don't like keep beating your head against the wall just because everyone else is doing it, right? The spiritual formation. If it works for you, keep it. If it doesn't, chuck it. Um, so finally, Encanto. You can probably tell from the graphics, right? Uh, I'm pretty sure that each of these different characters embodies one of these different Enneagram types. And so we're going to spend the summer going through one at a time and using the movie and the things that happen to these characters in the movie and the paths for growth that are charted out for these characters in the movie as a way to uh, learn these things better and to reflect on them and to see them in our own lives and in the lives of the people that we love and that we care about. Uh, so I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And... Uh, I'm really excited about it. Uh, Nathan is slightly less excited about it because he has to do all the songs. And I was like, well, I'm just going to do sermons, so sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, he's going to do a great job. We're very excited about the series. Um, 
what I want to do is, by way of bringing us to the table today, is just, again, we're at the beginning of this, right? We start next week with, with Abuela and start moving through the eights and then through the nines and the ones and, and, and beyond. What I want to do today is invite you. Are you ready to spend this summer learning how the Spirit is at work within you and within the congregation? Are you ready to listen? Are you ready to watch? Are you ready to learn? hope you are. So I want to invite you to the table this morning. I want to invite you to uh, participate in this time of reflection with us. And we're going to begin in our, uh, in our prayer of examine. We're actually going to begin with asking this very simple question that is at the same time one of the most difficult questions that we ask. And that is, are we receiving God's love? Right? What are the barriers in our life to sitting in God's loving, light-filled gaze? What's stopping us from doing that? Because that's where, that's where all of our work of spiritual formation begins. Can we allow God to see us? Can we truly receive God's unconditional, unmerited love? And if not, why not? What's getting in the way? So that, that's what our examine is going to focus on. And then I want to lead us into a time of receiving communion together. So here's the first question I want you to reflect on. Make this a prayer. When in the last week... Have I allowed myself to receive God's love? When have I sat in the light, in in God's loving gaze? Now, what has been a barrier to God's love in the last week? What has kept me out of the light? How might those barriers show up in my life this week? finally, how can I choose to receive God's love for me this week? What can I do to step into that light, to sit in God's loving gaze?
All right, let's pray together. God, you have gathered us today at the beginning of a journey that we're going to be on this summer together where we are, yes, uh, looking at a fun movie and, and yes, using this uh, tool that can sometimes feel uh, overwhelming or confusing or even scary. But at the end of the day, what you're inviting us to is real change, real growth, a real opportunity to see the ways that we hide from your love so that we can know them and that we can reject them and step into the light of your loving gaze. We do that this morning by coming to your communion table, the space that you set for us every week that is created and has no strings attached. It's simply an invitation to come all who are hungry and feast, to come all who are thirsty and drink. And so we do, we, we approach your table today and we, we receive these elements we pray that they would be a spiritual food for us, that, that in receiving this meal together, we might find the grace of your Holy Spirit to face our shadow selves and to reject them in favor of the truth that you speak over us. We offer these prayers now, and we approach your table, and we approach the summer of transformation, uh, all in the name of your son, Jesus. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he shared a meal with his disciples. And during that meal, he broke bread with them. And he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. And when the meal was finished, he gave them a cup of wine. And he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink it. And so now we too eat and drink. And as we do, we remember Jesus' death until he returns. Catalyst, I know that uh, doing shadow work can be really scary because uh, our shadows want to hide. We, we, it's easy for us to believe that uh, it's safer to stay where we are and as we are. But uh, as Encanto showed us, uh, just because things seem calm on the surface, that doesn't mean that they're good. And oftentimes it takes uh, doing that difficult work to get to a place of health and healing and wholeness. And that's what God wants for us. And so if we will be faithful this summer to stay in the loving light of God's uh, gaze upon us, then I promise you that God will do good things in us and among us. And I know that's true because God is faithful to God's promises. And, and God is the one who takes full responsibility for completing the work that God began in us. So as you go now, would you go with confidence that we can approach the, the journey that we're on this summer uh, knowing that the Spirit is with us and enabling us uh, to be more than conquerors, as Paul says in Romans. Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we will see you next week.